You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The coronavirus pandemic is surging in the U.S. with record-breaking numbers of infections and a climbing death toll. For over six months, policymakers have debated how to stop the spread of the virus, and most safety measures were left up to the states to implement. In this segment, Association of American Medical Colleges President and CEO, Dr. David Scorton, joined the Post to discuss the steps the organization feels the nation needs to take to stop the coronavirus. Let's listen. Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, I'm Francis Steed as a senior writer at the Washington Post. I'm about to speak with Dr. David Scorton. He's the president of the Association of American Co- uh, Medical Colleges, and he wrote an op-ed in today's paper drawing on the expertise from many ed- medical experts about how to tackle the virus. Welcome, Dr. Scorton. Thanks so much, Francis. It's an honor to be here. And it was a very interesting interview with Dr. Wynn. Thank you for that as well. I'm glad you were able to join us for that. So tell us about the roadmap that you laid out this morning in the Washington Post, drawing on expertise, as I said, from uh, medical colleges, academic institutions, and others. Well, uh, over the last few months, when we have been faced with the uh, horror of this pandemic, there's no other way to describe it, There's been a lot of advice coming from various different quarters, a lot of good ideas, but we felt at the AAMC that no no one actually put them together into one sort of cohesive unified whole. And so we need to come together in two different ways. One is to bring all these ideas together to separate those that are immediately urgent to those that are longer term, but still important. And then secondly, we have to bring people together As Dr. Wen was talking about, we have to stay away from politicization of science and move in the direction that we know is right. So those two things, come together on the evidence and come together across our differences, those are the ways that we believe we can make forward progress that we sorely need in this pandemic. So one of the things that you mentioned in that op-ed is the need for a national strategy on face masks. Are you talking about a national mask mandate or how can we do that and how can we overcome the political views that have, have, have come around issues like face mask wearing? Well, I wish I was smart enough to tell you how to get around politics in the United States. That one is a little bit above my pay grade. But I will say that uh, part, of the, part of the issue that we're facing, and face coverings is a very good example of that, is that uh, we are a beautiful country that's beautifully decentralized, the United States of America. And uh, just like in our K through 12 school system, every community has its own way of looking at things. And that's been a great strength of the country in many times. But right now we need a unified national view of things like face coverings. So if we can promulgate data and have effective communication, which you were just discussing uh, so importantly with Dr. Wen, then I believe that we can reduce some of the really wild variation that's occurring from municipality to municipality, from state to state and from region to region, so that we're taking an evidence-based approach. If there's an increase, growing amount of community spread, we have to wear masks and it should be mandatory. It should be mandatory and it should be enforced. If there are areas that are backing off on the severity of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, then perhaps mask wearing doesn't have to be mandatory. But we have to have criteria and we have to all follow the same criteria. Throughout the pandemic, there have been some very well, well well-developed criteria promulgated, for example, by the CDC, but there hasn't been a way to make sure that people all over the country are listening to those ideas 
and following along in a unified fashion. And that's true for face coverings as well. So yeah, on face coverings, I have an interesting question from a reader. This is, I'm gonna read it to you. This is Mark Reeves from Georgia who asks, why aren't medical experts pushing people to wear N95s and governments and suppliers to mass produce them? As we know that N95s are far more effective at blocking the virus than the cloth mask most of us are wearing. Well, it is definitely true. It's a very good question. Definitely true that different materials and different kinds of adequacy of fit of a mask will make a big difference in how effective they are. However, we're a couple of steps behind worrying about whether we need to go to N95s or use other kinds of masks. We need to get people to, as Dr. Wen said, see the face coverings as a sort of medication, if you will, a preventive measure for community spread of, uh, of, of coronavirus. And so that's, that's, that's part of the issue uh, right there. The other, the other point that was brought up is very, very important, and that is um, to talk specifically about N95 masks. These masks need to be fit expertly to the face. And so there may come a point where we can go to those, but I think right now we're far from being able to have enough N95s and to fit them correctly. The other point that the questioner, the viewer brought up, which is a very important point, is about manufacturing. And in terms of supplies in general, including but not limited to the supplies for face covering, but also the supplies to do tests, the supplies to do the various different kinds of tests in laboratories and so on, we have yet to have a strong enough national stand to utilize things like the Defense Production Act or perhaps other means to negotiate with manufacturers and to make sure that we not only have what we need now, but that we have what we're gonna need in the future as these surges will come and go. We're far from being done with the coronavirus and we need to pump up manufacturing so we're not always running behind in terms of supplies for whatever the reason, including but not limited to face coverings. So let me little, dig a little deeper on this question of a national strategy when the country is so varied. Um, you know, we saw hotspots earlier on, one in New York, and it wasn't really affecting the rest of the country nearly as severely at that point. Uh, is there a concern that you have about a sort of one-size-fits-all approach, or can we manage a national strategy and, and uh, mitigate locally? You know, I think, uh, actually, Francis, it's sort of a false choice. If we have a set of criteria like the original CDC criteria for reopening that requested, for example, that we have 14 days of stable cases and so on, then that can be adapted if it's followed carefully by any region in the country. So I think there's nothing wrong with having some local determination made in concert with public health professionals in that locality or in that state, but we need to follow a national mandate to have an approach that everyone can follow. And then how it's followed, of course, will depend on the situation locally. So some combination of a national agreement on what needs to be done, and then the political and personal will to do that in a local area. And I don't wanna point my finger just at government. We all are responsible for the failure that we are having. We have to take it on our own responsibility as individuals to listen to this advice, and as you were talking about with Dr. Wen, there's a problem sometimes with trust in scientific advice, but I believe if we did things, and I have some ideas how we could do that to increase trust in scientific advice, I believe we actually could use uh, national standards that are agreed upon at the national level and then apply them locally to whatever the situation actually is.
So one of the points, the important points you make in the roadmap is the need to address inequities. Um, Blacks and Latinos have suffered greatly in this uh, epidemic pandemic across the country. How do you propose to do that? And does this also involve increasing the percentages of Blacks and Latinos represented in medical schools? You just hit on a very, very important point. Uh, again, as I said in the op-ed, my first two words in the op-ed were, we're failing. I didn't say you're failing or they're failing, but we're failing. I've had a career that's nearing 50 years in academic medicine, and I've done my share of failing to move the needle on the issue, for example, of black men in medicine. Even though I've worked and striven hard uh, in diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, so yes, it's very, very important. And why is it important? It's important for social justice. Why else is it important? It's important for trust. It's important that people can see in the pool of physicians and other healthcare workers, a pool of individuals that look more like America than we look right now. So I think that is a very, very important issue. But let's talk about where we are right now. Even though we have failed to make the healthcare workforce as diverse as it needs to be, these health inequities that have really been uncovered by the coronavirus have not been caused by the coronavirus. Again, for generations, we have failed to deal with these health inequities. Some are based on a lack of health insurance coverage. Some are based on pre-existing conditions that occur more in certain populations. Many of them are based on what we call social determinants of health, such as in certain communities, the lack of available healthy food, the lack of all kinds of things that many of us who are more fortunate in the socioeconomic stratum take for granted that many of the people living in our fine cities are struggling with as well. So it's time that we got very serious about trying to do something at long last about health inequities. Now, one of the areas that we have to work on is trust in communities. And one way to, I believe, engage more trust in communities is to engage the communities themselves in the communication and collaboration. No one knows more about what's happening in a community than the people who live there. And experts that come in from the outside and don't take into account the points of view of patients and families and community leaders, I believe are doomed to fail. And so what we're calling for is listening to the community, working with the community, bringing of course the knowledge of experts but also listening to those who are trusted messengers in the community and work with them to get these messages across. Let me ask you a quick reader question. It's from uh, Tom Staliano from Massachusetts, who asks again about something that could lead to inequities. Who is expected to receive the first major batch of coronavirus vaccine? Medical workers, first responders, school teachers, and who should receive it? Well, thanks, uh, Mr. Staliano. It's a great, great question. Uh, the op-ed today referred to this uh, roadmap that we've put out that's on the AAMC website. If any of your viewers and listeners want to look at it, you just have to type in aamc.org. It's all over the website. And one of the areas that we're hitting for immediate action is to begin now to plan the very kinds of distributions of vaccine that Mr. Stagliano has brought up. And so our own point of view, my own point of view, is that the first people who need it are those who are healthcare workers, but also those who are particularly vulnerable, that have pre-existing conditions that make them more vulnerable to the coronavirus, not only to contracting it, but to getting very ill, not only to getting very ill, but perhaps to dying from it. And also people who are essential workers, 
rideshare drivers, taxi drivers, police, uh, those who um, have to deal with things where they can't so-called work from home. So yes, I think that needs to be done. And the first thing we need to do in planning a distribution of vaccines is to decide and make it very clear and transparent publicly around the country which agency, which part of the government will be in charge of developing and enforcing those distribution rules. All are very important and I very much appreciate our viewers' question. So that now that the virus is so sustained and diffuse across the country, it's no longer possible, as it was when New York was affected, to sort of send in the cavalry of nurses and healthcare workers to help there. There's a much, much broader diffusion. What can we do to support and help sustain uh, frontline workers at this point? It's such an important question. Uh, we have seen heartbreaking, heartbreaking stories of uh, problems where people are faced with incredible pressures long before the coronavirus pandemic. Concerns about physician and clinician well-being and, and well-being of all those who are on the front lines of disease day in and day out has been a problem for a very long time in medicine. Again, this is not something that was created by the coronavirus. But imagine the extra pressure on physicians and other healthcare workers who are basically to this point largely giving what we call in medicine supportive care. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have that yet. We don't have uh, curative medications, antivirals that will wipe out the disease. We have some things that are promising, remdesivir and steroids like the dexamethasone study, but we still don't have an antiviral that will be as effective as antivirals have been, for example, in HIV. So imagine the frustration, the horror, and the heartbreak of a clinician who's been trained as I was 50 years ago to do everything you can for your patient and to have not very much that you actually can do and therefore to watch patient after patient after patient get sicker and sicker and sicker, go on a ventilator and perhaps die. That's very, very hard because it goes against what we've all been taught that we want to do. We had the heartbreaking story of the physician at one of the New York hospitals uh, just a, a few months ago that showed people on the front lines are fragile they're brittle, and we need to remove the stigma, not only in healthcare workers, but around the country, remove the stigma for seeking help, for depression, for seeking help from alcoholism, for seeking help from other addictions, so that people will not be afraid and not worry about the stigma of asking for help. And it's very, very important that we get to the point where we in medicine accept each other and where we in society accept each other to ask for help when help is sorely needed. So I know that you have some time pressure and we need to finish soon, but I have one last question I really would like to ask you, if you can answer it briefly. You've been president of Cornell, you were the secretary of the Smithsonian, you've been at the head of big public institutions. You finished the op-ed today by saying that the greater good requires us putting aside our differences. What roles do these big public institutions that you have been the head of have in helping us to combat the challenge we have ahead? Well, there are so many wonderful public and private institutions in our country, but I have to say that public institutions in general have a little special uh, angle on what they do because it is in the public good by definition. Now, I wanna hasten to say, that's also of course true of private universities. Cornell is a private university and was very much, very much active every day, day in and day out in the public interest. But public institutions of all kinds are made 
and oriented and their bylaws and their ways of doing things are oriented toward the public interest. And so I do think public institutions are very, very important. And I think that, for example, academic health centers, whether they be in public or private uh, domains, not, not for profit, have a very important role to play in helping to get the word out and do things. But again, I wanna to return to our earlier uh, conversation, Francis, that we can't come roaring in as experts and tell people what to do. We have to work with communities. We have to gain and earn the trust that will be needed for these pieces of advice to be taken seriously. And we have to listen to those in the community, people of color, people of all uh, backgrounds, so that we can understand what they need, give them what they need in terms of information, and then try very hard to all pull together. I think that's the way forward. Thank you, meeting people where they are. And thank you for joining us today, Dr. Scorton. Thank you, Francis. It was a great honor and congratulations on all you're doing at The Post. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.